Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step -step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what, when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one year old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out standingstonesupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. We start a dog and we're, we primarily use motivation. As a dog understands what's expected, right, and things are clear, then we can put on pressure and you're working towards training a dog with the least amount of pressure possible. Why is it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns? You either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun, while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons, but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream. Why can't it be both? This is what Upland Gun Company does. They take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on. Whether it's a side-by-side -side or over-under, English stock or full pistol grip, custom engravings such as your dog's portrait, even down to selecting the wood on your stock. Head on over to UplandGunCompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons. No two hunters approach the field the exact same way. That's why it's nice to have a vest that can be completely customized to fit your specific needs. Final Rise creates high-functioning Upland gear that delivers comfort and balance that assists you chasing wild birds in wild places. The vest's unique lumbar pad and weight-bearing waist belt makes it too easy to keep going to the next horizon. Add in any of the awesome and functional accessories for the vest along with their new tactical apparel and you'll be outfitted with a complete setup that was proudly sourced and sewn right here in the USA. Check out FinalRise.com to order yours today. Alright everybody, welcome back to another week of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. This week my guest is Jake Face and he's coming on to talk about something completely different that we haven't talked about in three plus years. But first, Jake, how you doing man? Good, good. I'm doing well. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and kind of explain to everybody what it is that we're here to talk about today. So I'm Jake Face. I'm from Minnesota. I live about 20, 30 minutes east of the cities. And before I got into bird dogs, um, I was, I've been in the protection dog sport for around 10 years, um, specifically a sport called Mondioring, um, which is a sport that tests you in obedience, jumps, and then uh, protection stuff. So I'm not even going to pretend like I know what this Mondio ring is. I, yeah. You mentioned that when, when when we were talking uh, briefly about possibly doing a profile episode or something. You mentioned this, and and of course, you know, this this is how my brain works. You mentioned something, I, I'm like, what is that? And you capture my attention when you started breaking down exactly what it is. And, and ultimately, it's like the ultimate test between 
obedience in the dog and teamwork with the handler. And obviously there's a lot of overlap as we talk on this podcast a lot about dog training is dog training. So when you kind of clued me into that and you sent me a couple links and, and Google and YouTube and all that fun stuff, it's actually a real fascinating sport. It, you know, I, I, a lot of people I think listening to this might be a little more familiar with Schutzend, which yep. it's, it's similar to it, but it is different. Uh, go ahead and kind of break down what is Mondio Ring ultimately, like all the different tasks and exercises and, and, and how it's structured, I guess. Yeah, so Mondio Ring started, um, and it was based on other protection sports, so like Schutzend. Um, which a lot of people call IB, IPO or IGP now. And then another protection sport called French Ring and then KNPV. And what they did is they kind of took everything that they liked from those sports and then mashed it into one. So this sport is really cool and it's really fun for people who enjoy training because the field is always set up differently. There's everything is uh there's always different distractions so in like shuts and if we're comparing it to that um they really focus on like precision so they retrieve a dumbbell where in mondia ring they could retrieve my pen my coffee cup uh my phone pair of keys whatever so what they're really looking for is like does the dog do the thing or do they not so it's a really cool sport just because it keeps you on your toes and you it's uh yeah just a lot of different stuff so what i'm hearing is it's kind of like schutzen there's a lot of precision i know that there's a lot of tracking and stuff involved in schutzen but mondio ring at least from my perspective is it seems like like you said, every test is different. The sequence of events are different. The objects are different. So it's kind of like it's taking that task and really putting it to the test of the handler and the dog to make sure that like you really train the task instead of just the uh, j- just the exercise almost to where a lot of uh, events, dog tests included or hunting tests included to where a lot of people kind of do this assembly line testing to where it's like they test to the standard or they train to the standard of the test instead of yep. training a task. Is that correct where like that's why it's designed this way to it makes sure that the dog is actually trained to the actual task instead of the actual exercise itself? Yeah, exactly. And it's also more like, did the dog do the thing or did they not do it versus like, Oh, they have to do it a certain way. They have to um, look this way when they're doing it, right? So, like, for myself and being a dog trainer, yeah, I like things to look pretty, but in reality, I just want my dog to do the thing and do it well, you know? So it doesn't have to look a uh, necessarily a specific way. Do I work towards that? Yeah, because I like it when things look good, but... um yeah, I guess I like to focus on the distraction part of it, you know, and will my dog uh, run through um, streamers or bottles and bite the guy? And I don't care if the bite is necessarily like full or my dog looks confident. Like, I just want to make sure they do it. So it's more go or no go or pass or fail as opposed to it doesn't incorporate style. It's like just 
did the job get done or did it not get done? Correct. Yep. And I can relate to that a, a lot of the ways. I I personally don't like going to events or or trials or tests or whatsoever that that there's a lot of subjective judging from somebody, you know, supposedly there's standards or characteristics that they, they can point to in a, in a rule book. But I, I've seen some trials to where it's like you're just watching a dog that tear it up in a field and then they get picked up or or dropped from the trial for something that you didn't even see. And then the judge can't even put into terms why they didn't like what they saw. And it, it's kind of frustrating to where I, I appreciate that approach to where it's just like, did the dog do the task or did it not? And it's pretty yep. much that simple. So what kind of dogs were you dealing with? You know, what, what primarily makes up Mondio ring? So the dog that kind of dominates or the breed that dominates the sport is the Belgian Malinois. And then there's a lot of uh, shepherds, um, Dutch shepherds, um, things like that. But there's a whole lot of breeds that play the sport. Uh, I did a trial back in October and there was a border collie that did it. Um, you see some bully breeds. And another thing that's real cool is even if your dog doesn't bite and they don't like the protection part of it, or they don't excel, um, you can just do obedience and jumps okay. in, in each level. So in Mondiering, there's technically four levels. There's a Bervais, which is like the technically the easiest, right? And then there's level one, level two, and level three. Once you get into the levels, you have to get two legs before you can move on. So you can't just pass it once. They want you to do it again, to show that you didn't just get lucky. Um, but you can, you can do obedience all through level three. And one of the coolest dogs I ever seen work, this was when I was out in, uh, Pennsylvania, it was a cattle dog and Doberman cross. And it was doing the obedience and jumps part at level three. And the dog was phenomenal. So, any dog can do it. Were there any yep. gun dog breeds, any bird dog breeds? Did you see any like short hairs or draughts or anything out there attempting this? No, but I've I've seen on social media there's um, a woman who does it with a short hair. Um, but I have gone to a trial where there was a lab who was competing in a different sport, very similar. It was competing in French ring, um, and the dog was competing at level three. Okay. And doing all the bites and everything like that. Wow. So, and one one neat aspect of this, like you said, there's different levels. You got the obedience. You you have the bites stuff. You have all that. You're out there doing it all in one go. So it's not broken up in in like a typical hunt test that maybe these bird dog listeners uh, are familiar with, to where it's like you go do one event and stop, and then later on they set up another event and they do it, then another event later on down. It's like you go out there and when you're competing, it's all in one go. So you can have like uh, I think I watched one video of a lady just do like 17 different tasks and exercise. All in one go. There was no break. There was no stop. It was, I think it took her like 20, 30 minutes or something like that just for one brace or one exercise. Yep. So like that's a testament to where not only do you have to train all these individual tasks, but then you need to have the dog be able to perform them all in one go. All in all in one go. And um, you can't use any equipment. So your dog can't even wear a collar 
you have to drop your leash before you step onto the field. So like the dog that I've traveled with my Malinois after each exercise and he in the lap. So it, it always starts with the obedience first, then jumps and then protection. So they're most dogs, their favorite thing is protection. So there's a lot of anticipation till you get there and you have no way to correct them. So, um, when I trial, my dog gets more and more slippery, right. As, as it goes on, like I'm losing him because I've, and the cool thing is too, you can only use one command. So you, otherwise you lose points if you give a second. So, um, when you give dog direction, you can only say it once. Otherwise you could say it again, but you lose points for general luring. Okay. So there is an actual point structure to this. It's not as simple as just pass fail there is you do get dock points or earn points for each task and i guess on the handler side of things on how many commands you give like talk to me about the scoring system you know but it's not just a pass fail it's just how did where do the points come into all this so me not being that technical of a person right right but they do score the handler on everything and then the dog so let's say we're talking about retrieving okay let's say i throw um last trial i did i had to throw a gas can right like one of those plastic ones my dog he was super he was trying to figure out how to get it and he was chompy so he was chompy bringing it back so i lost a few points there and then another uh place where i lost points is during healing i told him to heal and without even realizing it, cause I'm just, I'm nervous, you know, um, I'm trying to pay attention to everything that I'm doing as I'm healing, I'm walking and I just lift up my hand to kind of rub my nose. I lost points there. Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because, because that could be a signal to my dog, yeah. you know, to pay attention or whatever. So yeah, they really watch you closely as a handler, and then they watch your dog. Let's say it's a biting exercise, and they're slow to bite. They get dock points if they don't out right away on your uh, whistle or your recall. Then they get dock points. So there is um, precision that's involved, but it's more based on is the dog doing the thing or are they not? Gotcha. So. What walk, walk me through the purpose of mixing up? You know, we kind of talked about we're trying to take uh, train a skill or or the task or whatever, and yeah. not not just train the dog to pick up this one object over and over and over again, and then you know come test day they know that one object. Why is it so important that we have a well-rounded dog to where you may train your dog with a dumbbell or a bumper or whatever in the yard, and then you show up to a mondo mondo ring test and you're throwing a gas can you know a lot of people might hear that and be like when the hell is my dog ever going to need to pick up a gas can like what is the purpose of that the the purpose because the sport is all about environmental stuff and different distractions so the purpose of it is to really proof your dog's training and do they know it in different things it's kind of like uh working with pet dogs yeah, my dog knows sit. Okay, they they know sit really well. Okay, well, do they know sit from a down? You put your dog into a down, you tell them sit. Goes right over the dog's head, right? 
they know sit from a standing position, but it doesn't mean they know sit from a down. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You're you're, you're changing up the the process or the normal uh, pattern of things. So, is it clear that your dog actually understands what sit means, or is it just used to when the dog is sit, you know, standing in front of you in the kitchen and you're about to give it a biscuit? It knows sit then, but then does it know sit from the down position or a place position or or what have you? Yeah. So even with like a retrieve object, it's like, yeah, my dog plays fetch all the time. They know how to retrieve. What do you use? Tennis ball. Awesome. Okay. So could you throw your pen? Would your dog do the same thing? Probably not. So do they truly know like retrieving as a command or do they just do it because it's fun and it's with a thing that they like? Right. So it's really more so to prove behaviors, whether they like the object, the exercise or not, we still want them to do it. Yeah. And so ultimately it goes back to you're trying to create this well-rounded dog that that understands all these skills and tasks and what you want. And that's why it's kind of the ultimate teamwork. Uh, another thing that I noticed from these videos that I was watching, uh, again, I didn't watch that many, but the amount of distraction noises like you you already talked about all the different objects you know it's like i was watching one guy in a bite suit uh squirt water water from a water bottle at the dog and then it had these crazy like flags and empty things that it's like throwing in the dog's face and the dog was under control the entire time the, the handler had control and it was just like with one little just toot on a whistle the dog would drop and go back to the handler And, you know, we talk all the time about training our dogs with distractions and changing up locations that this competition really kind of puts that to the test. Yes. Yep. So talk to me, what what kind of dogs did you personally run when you're doing this? So I've only run one dog. He's seven years old now. Um, He's a Belgian Malinois and I started training him when he was eight weeks old. Um, And when I was looking for a dog, so I was training in the sport two, two to three years before I personally got a dog. So I was decoying, I was the guy wearing the suit. So once I got more involved, I'm like, oh, I really want to get a dog. So just like with breeding bird dogs, it's like, uh, there's people who breed for the sport, right. In a certain style of dog. And since I was newer and I didn't have the connections or relationships with people, I got turned down by like four or five different breeders. They're like, Hey, I don't know who you train with. I don't um, know you. I'm not going to sell you a dog. Right. So it took a lot of looking. And then I found a guy in uh, Chicago, um, got a dog from him. And one, the way that I had an in with him was, um, one of the girls that trained with us, she got a puppy from him. So she brought the puppy up and I was like, Ooh, that's a nice looking puppy, whatever. And she's like, yeah, I'll connect you with them. So, um, yeah, I got my dog and then I've been training him ever since, but I didn't start trialing with him till he was probably three years old. Mm. And so real quick on the, on the puppy search, I've kind of heard that obviously I don't have any personal experience in that world, but I've kind of heard that from other people, uh, mainly in, in Schutzen, 
that talks about if if you're brand new to it, you have to do what you just said. You have to spend a while kind of paying your dues because yeah. these breeders and the people that are successful in the sport are very reluctant. I don't know if that's the right word to describe it or not to uh, put their dog in just any home. Like it's, it's supposedly from what I've been told, a very hard thing to kind of get your foot in and get started. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And it's just because like, uh, they're a lot of dog and they're bred to bite. So they don't make great family dogs They're They are harder to handle because they have so much drive. Um, so when I went down to pick up my puppy, he, uh, the breeder told me, yeah, he, he's going to be a little sharper when he gets, uh, when he starts to mature. And I was like, no, I'll socialize him. I'll do everything by the books, you know? And he was super, so, uh, social towards people and dogs until he turned two years. And then, um, once he hit two, everything kind of changed. And that's where I think genetics really kicked in. Um, because with like nature versus nurture, you can only nurture so much before nature takes over. So after that, yeah, he's kind of a sharper dog. He doesn't do well with, uh, new people and he's not, he's not dangerous or malicious, but he's not a dog that you want to go love up on and kiss on the forehead. Uh, <laughs> and then with other dogs, he can be pretty, uh, temperamental. So talk to me about how that is. I mean, when you decide to get into this, I mean, obviously you've been training at it. You've been the decoy guy. It's something that you want to get into. You you spent time doing it. You're invested yep. in it. How do you wrap your head around the fact that you're going to have a dog in the house that maybe is going to have issues around strangers, around other dogs, around family members inside the house? You just said they don't make a great, you know, companion dog or house dog. Yep. How do you kind of wrap your head around that and and come to terms with that? Because that's uh, we live with our dogs more than we work our dogs, right? So yeah. you know, kind of walk me through the headspace that you have to be to know what you're realistically getting into with these dogs. So I would say not all Malinois are are sharp. Some do make good family dogs, but then there's a, a lot that that don't. And when I got um, my Malinois, I was fresh out of college and I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have kids. I was just on my own and I was super into training. I trained with a club two, three times a week, right? So that was my life. I was fully invested. And then it wasn't until he was about five, no, four or five when I got married. And then now I have a 16 month old daughter, right? And I don't want, when he's on the ground, she's not on the ground, right? Cause I just don't want anything to, to happen. And he's pretty neutral towards her. I just don't want to push it because I've seen the way he's reacted before. Um, but uh, I still train several times a week with him. So his needs are met. He's been worked. Um, we just kind of do a lot more management um with him so uh when my daughter comes home usually he's crated right and once she goes down for bed or whatever then he's out i'll train him in my garage and stuff like that so um yeah it just takes 
takes a little bit more effort and it's not as convenient as um like my my Brittany, right? My Brittany can be out most of the time um just because I don't have to worry about him hurting my daughter or anything like that. Right. What what about how does uh the Mal get along with the Brit? Do do, do they kind of do they keep separate as well or do you kind of interact them on occasion? So I have I have three dogs. I have a uh, four or 14-year-old Australian cattle dog that I used to do frisbee competitions with. Um, <laughs> All right. And then and then I uh got my Malinois and then I have a 10-month-old Brittany. So my Malinois does not like my Brittany. He's a lot more tolerant of him now than he used to be, but I do keep him separate just because my Brittany hasn't really developed those social skills yet, right? right. He's still a 10-month-old puppy. He's just going to dive bomb him, like try to get him to play. My Malinois is like, dude, I'm over that stage in my life, <laughs> right? He's like, I just want to sit on the porch, have a glass of scotch and smoke a cigar. Yeah, You know, I don't. I don't want to play with you. So, um, but I'll like, I exercise them together. I, I can run them together. Like they're good in that way, but let's say I'm, uh, sitting on the couch watching TV and I have both dogs out. Well, if they're not both on their place and they're just floating around, yeah, then, then I'm probably going to have problems. Mm. So, Let's go back to the Mal. You said you got you got the puppy. You started training the puppy at eight weeks old. You know, with something like Mondio Ring that is so obviously just obedience heavy. I mean, that's ultimately what they're grading is obedience and teamwork with the handler. Talk yep. to me about the the calendar. You know, the time slider. What are we training? How like how intense is it? Are you getting this dog home and at eight weeks old, you're boom, you're doing training sessions every single day and working on that obedience? Or is it slow and more slow and methodical than what most people would think on average? Oh, it's a little bit of both. So when I brought him home at eight weeks, I started training right away. So I really like free shaping behaviors. So using a clicker making the dog think and kind of thinking on their own to do stuff. So with some of the more complicated things, uh, like retrieving, I would just shape it. Like I would have a little PVC pipe. I'd kind of wave it in front of his nose. If he just poked it with his nose, then I would click, give him a treat. Then I would work up to him just putting his mouth on it and then, um, throw it on the ground, him just picking it up. And then eventually working on a hold. But as far as like some of the easier things like healing or uh, coming into my side, recall, I started that all right away. I did a lot of luring, but it's I was working more like muscle memory, right? And conditioning res a response and stuff like that. But I didn't expect perfection. I had puppy expectations, but I still went through the motions with him with a lot of the behaviors, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just for clarification for some listeners that maybe haven't heard those some of those terms on prior podcasts or, or anywhere else, can you kind of give a, a quick definition of free shaping as well as luring? Because you, you threw those out yep. there. 
and uh, and not everybody that's listening today has has heard that on the previous episodes with like behavioral theory or anything okay. like that. So free shaping, you're not you're letting the dog kind of think on their own. So I'll kind of give an example because I think that's the best way to kind of explain it. Let's say we're working on place work or having a dog go to a board, right? And I'm sitting there holding treats and I have some way to mark it, whether it's a verbal marker, yes, or a clicker. And I'm just standing there and the puppy, and usually there's no other things in the room. I don't want any toys. I don't want other platforms or things to go to. It's just me and that board, right? And the puppy is looking at me and it's like, okay, there's just you, me and the board in this room, right? And the moment they look at it, click, I'm going to give them a treat, right? And then they look at it again and they're like, ooh, this thing has some value to it. So they might walk over and touch their nose to it. All right, I'm going to mark it and reward it. Then eventually getting them on and then working on duration, having them stay on it. So that's free shaping. Let's say I wasn't free shaping and I was luring them there. Then I would probably stick the treat right in front of their nose and guide them onto the platform or the board, then mark it, right? So um, luring, you're kind of um, holding their hand a little bit more, right? And free shaping, it's kind of like they're doing it themselves. And I think there's benefits to both because I feel like if you free shape too much or too many things, then you have a dog who's uh, constantly guessing, right? So I think it's kind of a balance of both depending on the dog. Yeah. No, that, that, that's a good explanation. You know, luring, a, exactly what you said. Picture, you know, you're going fishing and you tie on a yeah. lure and you're reeling it in. And the, yeah, it, the dog's going to hit it and free shape. And you're essentially allowing the dog to make up its own mind and, and figure out which holds value and which doesn't. Uh, Talk to me about healing because this is something to where you look at the standards that you have in these type of sports, these obedient sports, whatever you want to call them, and you you relate that or compare that to the bird dog world and what we have healing. Y'all's healing is completely yeah. different than our yeah. healing. You know, it's like I'm watching some of the videos and the people that are doing a heal. I mean, yeah, it's a nice, really tight heel. The dog is looking up for eye contact the entire time. I'm going to be honest. I don't like the way it looks. I just kept picturing myself tripping over that dog while I'm trying to walk yep, at a normal yep. gait. Um, but talk to me about the requirement. Like, why is the eye contact? Why is the dog, you know, to, to try and paint a better picture with the videos I saw, and you can correct me yep. at any time, the dog is about like the leg is about at the shoulder level and the dog is just kind of looking up at you for eye contact, but the head is kind of like in front, in front of your thigh almost. And they're going at the same pace yep. as you. And, and I can't help but think like my, I'm just going to be tripping over yep. that dog. And, and I want a little bit looser of a heel. It's impressive, but talk to me like, is there a purpose behind that or why, why is that the requirement or standard? So if we're specifically talking about monitoring, luckily in monitoring, healing's only worth six points. And it doesn't matter, or they don't care how it necessarily looks. But since it draws in people who really enjoy training, they like to have style, right? So some people want their dog's head to be like straight back, almost like looking into their armpit, right? And they have right. like the the hot beat. So they're 
kind of yeah. stepping, right? So people work on that um, exact position, which is a lot more tedious. It takes a lot more work. Um, some people teach their dog, yep, eye contact. When I say heel, you have to be engaged with me the entire time. And when you're training it, it's just like baby steps, right? So if I tell you heel, um, and when I, when I say heel, your shoulders, this is how I train it, but your shoulders can't pass my hip. So I'm creating a clear marker. Hey, don't go past that. So, uh, it's kind of the same concept as like invisible fence training. Just don't go past the flags, right? So your shoulders can't pass my hip. And then I want you to look at me while we're walking. So I might just take one step in the beginning heel, right? And I might have something to kind of draw their attention, like a ball underneath my armpit, right? Or it could be holding food in my hand. And then I'm just going to mark that one step. And then I could do three steps and then just gradually build on that until I can heal my dog a hundred yards, right? But uh, some people don't care if they say heel and their dogs kind of looking around, you know, some people want the head to look a certain way, their body to move uh, differently, you know, and things like that. Like in Schutzend or IPO, they really hammer on the healing. Like the dog has to look a certain way to get full points. Where in Mondia Ring, they're like, as long as your dog doesn't forge, come forward, and they're, it's consistent, then you're good. Okay. Have you heard or are you aware of if there's an actual practicality to that high level of healing? The only the only person that I've heard that kind of clued me into a purpose behind it is they're like, you know, picture you're you're in a very crowded or busy street uh, event or something like that. You don't want that dog even looking at potential distractions or anything else. You want that dog's entire focus on you and what you're doing. And, you know, it's like, well, at least he, he he conveyed it in some way, you know, whether you, you buy into that or not. Is there, is there any other kind of functionality to that, that you would say that the high head and, and the Tennessee walking horse gate kind of gives you? I would just say a style and your dog is less likely to get distracted because they're focused on you. Um, but with like my Malinois, when I want him to do what most people think of healing at as and I say walk. So that means you walk at my side without pulling, right? And he can look around, he can do stuff. But the moment I tell him heal, then I get that fancy look. Yeah. All right. So ultimately just, uh, just looks yeah. and, and preference, yeah. I guess, personal preference. Uh, so talk to me about, you, you've talked about marking, free shaping, luring, all that fun stuff. What about pressure? You know, where does pressure line up and, and how you guys use that in your training a lot of times we we start a dog and we're we primarily use motivation um but then we also as a dog understands what's expected right and things are clear then we can put on pressure whether that's pressure with a collar uh like a training collar or even an e-collar um so we use a lot of that, but you can't be so dependent on it that you can't go out and trial, right? So you kind of have to make sure your communication is super clear and you're working towards training a dog with the least amount of pressure possible 
because if you're always harping on your dog with pressure, then when you go out to trial, cause that's the end goal, kind of like with my dog, it's since they know correction, they know that a correction is not going to happen. They get more and more slippery. Right. And then they, um, they try to get away with stuff that they wouldn't normally do in training. So what's the difference between somebody listening to this? I guarantee you just thought like, well, what's the difference between a training collar and an e-collar? Are you just talking about a prong yeah, collar? collar? Yep. Or pinch yeah, collar, pinch slip collar. lead, um, any of those tools. Yeah. And, and some people may not even consider a slip lead, quote unquote, pressure. Uh, a lot of people don't even perceive a lot of the stuff that is pressure as pressure when, when they're training, you know, when they say that uh, we're a force free deal and it's like, well, there's, there's a thing called perceived yep. pressure as well. And so uh, talk to everybody on that. Like when do you, as the handler, like you said, y'all use motivation primarily to teach, but once it's taught, it sounds like, you know, you'll use a collar, a pinch lead, you'll use pressure. What, how do you guys develop like the correct amount of pressure, when to use it and, and so on and so forth? Because that's a skill in of itself, just like the timing and while you're teaching and motivating, it, there's also you have to have that same kind of timing and consistency on the back end of that yeah. as well. So I'd say it's it's probably different what well, it is different for each handler and each dog. So if I'm talking about myself and my my Malinois, my Malinois, he uh, he can take a lot of pressure. It doesn't affect him in any way other than he might want to be more combative with me. So when I was a new handler, just getting into the sport, I feel like I put too much pressure on him. I kind of had unrealistic expectations like, Hey, he does this, um, at this training field, he should know it here. And when he didn't do the thing, I would get on him and then he would come up at me. So I, what people told me is, Hey, you got to be harder on. Well, that kind of affected our relationship, right? Cause he's like, dad, I don't know. And then you're getting on me for something that I don't know. I don't see this as being fair. So then I kind of took a break from that and I'm like, all right, I really need to clean up my, uh, communication. I want him to know when I want to make things as black and white as possible with like no gray areas. Right. And then I also want to put in uh, a marker word since my dog was familiar with a marker system where sometimes let's say we tell a dog to sit, sit, and they don't sit. Then we say the command again, as we correct them. Well, we didn't mark the incorrect behavior. Right. So let's say I asked my dog to sit. He doesn't, uh, respond in a timely manner, or he blows me off, then I'm going to mark no, give him a correction, sit, right? So that way with me marking it, he understands that a correction is coming and why it's happening. So once I kind of clean that up, then I could um, use pressure in different ways, but it made more sense to him. And the with the e-collar, I, I like it personally, just because it's not personal, right? It's like, Hey dude, you screwed up. This is what happens when you screw up, but he knows better, right? It's not like he doesn't know why he's getting corrected and it's just coming out of the sky. Yeah. And that was a, a really good, I, I like what you just talked about as far as sometimes you have to repeat yeah. a command. 
you know, you hear, I've said it all the time, you hear it from other people, never repeat a command, like, you know, the first command. Well, you have to teach that to a certain degree. And, and like you said, most of us will just repeat the command while correcting them, but that doesn't, that doesn't help because you're just giving the command a second time. And so the dog is just learning, okay, I have to do it on the second time. But if you mark the behavior, just like the dog learns that something is good by marking it uh, in a good behavior, you also have to mark it in the bad Mm -hmm. too. You know, whether that's verbal or or whatever your system is, your, your e-collar, whatever, what have you. So I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a constant conversation, even in my household with my wife, I'm constantly like, I'm like, stop repeating the command. You've said it like five times. And uh, I'm like, at least correct them when they make the mistake. When, you know, if you tell them to go to the bed and they get off the bed or place, what have you, you need to correct that. Uh, uh, and then you can give another command and get them back yep. on the place. Is that, is that kind of fair or correct yep. to say? So I'll give them a reminder after I correct them and I mark it. Hey, this is what, this is what I said, or this is what you should be doing. So I want to give them a reminder after, but and I like my goal is to get a dog to respond the first time I say something, right? Because working with dogs for a while, let's say we're talking about sit again, okay? And yesterday I said sit 10 times before they did it, okay? Then today I expect it the third time well, what the heck is tomorrow and every day after going to look like? So what you have is a dog that's guessing. They're like, all right, at what point do you mean it? Is it when you get frustrated and you raise your voice? Or is it when you say it, when you say it right away, right? Because then if you can keep a dog from guessing, they're, they're more confident and there's less conflict and anxiety with what they're supposed to be doing. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. You, you, you said it earlier in this episode, we've talked about it on other episodes. My buddy Scott, uh, says it all the time, black and white, all that, all that stuff in the middle is that gray area. And our job as handlers and trainers is to reduce the amount of gray area. Uh, because what, again, you just said, said the key word fairness, you know, it's, it's not fair for us to expect certain actions from a dog if they haven't been taught it well enough or we've done a horrible job communicating it and like you said it meant you know us saying it three times yesterday and then today we expect perfection on the first go it's that's not how it works you you've all obviously been working your mouth you've gone through all this stuff talk to me like how did the performance go like did you you got into the ring was it everything you'd hoped it would be while you're kind of getting into it it sounds like you had like a five-year uh, process leading up to the ring. You, I think you said two years of playing the decoy, then finding your dog, and you didn't get in the ring with with your dog until he was three. Uh, so five years you've been working to this goal. Talk to me about like the day that it finally come. Did it did it exceed your expectations? Meet it? Uh, kind of underwhelming. Talk to me about the the realization of we're actually in the show ring now. Yeah. So. I would say the first three times that I trialed him, I failed. So, and it wasn't so much of it, or it was on me more than, than it was my dog. So it was a lot of uh, handler errors that cost us points versus how my dog uh, performed. So he did a lot better um, than I expected he would. And it was weird because he, 
he almost does better when he trials than in training. So when he knows equipment's off, he's like, whoo, like, Hey, there's not as much pressure. I know what I can do. Right. But he still kind of, I still lose him sometimes, but he almost does better trialing than he does in training. That's interesting. I, I know a few bird dogs like that as well to where I'm in the training w- uh, field with them and I'm watching I'm like, man, this dog's looking rough, you know, and, and we have a test here in a couple of weeks or months and, and you're look, kind of looking at the handler. I'm like, hey, you know, you know your dog better. And then they go out and boom, max score it. And like, there's one in particular that's coming to mind. He's done that three times at each level of testing to where it's like the week before the testing. I'm like, this is, this is not good. Like I, if, if I'm the owner, I'm not running that dog. But after the first time, everybody learned to keep their mouth shut because he just shows up on test day. Like it's just some dogs do it. And then we've seen the reverse where some dogs will freaking crush it in the training field or whatever. Then they go out on trial and they're just like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) Yep. No, it's the same thing. Same exact thing with uh, protection dogs. It's the same. It's the same thing. It's it's insane like, like that. I mean, I don't I don't really know. Do you have any? theories or or tips to where let's say that you have the dog that crushes it in the training field but then you go to a test testing environment and they just completely fail and they fall apart you know what is that in in your mind is there some kind of tip that somebody that maybe they have that dog is there something that you can do because even just training in the actual field that you're testing in doesn't seem to really do it. It's just like it, you can simulate an actual testing environment as much as you can, but actually being out there on the real day, it seems like some dogs just know when it's real and when it's fake. Yep. So, so you're asking if a dog does better in training and not so good yeah. trialing? Yeah. If they just fall apart on a trial, like is there what as a trainer that, like you said, you can baby step this stuff on up. Is there any tips or tricks or is it just some dogs are built that way? No, I would say what I would really look into is how much hand holding we're doing, um, when we're training. So are we like helping them with a collar or the leash constantly? Are we constantly giving them then feedback in some way? Right. So the dog is always looking for guidance. And when that's not there, then they, they don't know what to do. So what I like to do with dogs like that is kind of do mock trials. So we're going to train as if it was a trial and we're going to use the same rules and kind of go about it the same way. So that way we can see how our dog is going to respond. Then, all right, our dog responded this way. So this is how we're going to adjust our training style. Okay. Maybe we say less or, um, not use our equipment as much and things like that. Gotcha. That, that makes sense. Um, so you failed the first three times you go into the trial, like you just said, it was more handler issues than, uh, than dog issues, which I'd, I'd say that's probably the more common thing. Even what you just said on the mock test or whatever, it's like, how much hand holding are we doing? I like how your, your first inclination is to, what is the handler doing wrong? Not yep. what is the dog doing wrong? And oftentimes that's going to lead you on the on the correct path. But it sounds like you did come into success in the, in the trial ring. So the first three bombed. The fourth one, did y'all like walk me through it? Like the when you actually met success, what was it like? It was it was awesome because you 
you train basically all year you train with um clubs so you're you have a community of people that are kind of around you and you're uh training several times a week and then when it all comes together it's like okay that hard work finally finally paid off and it was cool because after the first time uh we passed it was a two-day trial and most people will tell you hey don't don't trial back to back right because your dog will get away with things and if they get away with something once it's a lot harder to kind of go back and work them through it so uh one of my mentors he was doing his uh judge apprenticeship so he was he needed dogs to show that way he could get experience doing that so he asked me he's like hey even though you passed do you want to run theron uh uh tomorrow and i was like sure why not and he pretty much got the same exact score so even though i trialed two days in a row he performed kind of exactly the same nice so Fast forward a little bit. I know I know that you had a longer career in the ring with him, uh, but you have a Brittany now. You got into yep. bird dogs. So why the transition from Mondio ring into the bird dog space? Oh, I'd say a lot of things. So uh, when I married my wife, her dad uh, was super into pointers for like 30 years. So he had a kennel and he, he did training. So um, he's a big dog guy. And, uh, he got out of it when her parents, uh, got divorced. So he didn't have any dogs when I met him and stuff, but we would talk dogs all the time. And then he mentioned grouse, you know, and things like that. I had no clue what they were, but it kind of sparked an interest in me. Right. So as my Malinois got older and I've kind of been really involved with Mondiering, I was like, I'm kind of looking for a different pace, especially starting a family and things like that because you in order to train for mondiering you need a club like you need a group of people to bring distractions set up a field and basically create the whole scenario so i was like okay do i want to get another malinois to compete with when i'm starting a family and potentially having another sharp dog that i'm trying to manage around kids and all this or do I want to get something that um, I can enjoy with family, get into something that I've never done before because I never grew up in a hunting family. And uh, I was like really looking into it and then decided on um, getting a bird dog instead and then doing a lot of research and stuff. Um, I'm like, still takes as much training you know i can still train you know so that's i don't know if that answers your question but that's what kind of yeah. made me do the switch yeah and and like you said it's it's still training like you said for you to be successful in mondio ring and all that you ha you have to appreciate training you have to enjoy training and you can do that till your heart's fulfilled in the bird dog space it just kind of depends on what you want to direct your dog towards so what what kind of dog did you end up going with? What did you decide on when you d decided to do the deep dive and start researching breeds? So I actually had a small Munsterlander for a little bit. Um, it 
one of my friends, she lived in Missouri and she worked for Prina Farms and she uh, made a post and she's like, yeah, I rescued these two small Munsterlanders. I was like, I was asking her about it. I thought it was hers. And she's like, no, he's up for adoption. And I was like, talking to my wife and I was like, hey, should we like, what do you think about getting a third dog? You know? <laughs> and so <laughs> what she told me is she goes, if you get a dog, I get a baby. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So we did a, we did a dog for a baby, but I, um, got my small Munsterlander. I had him for, for two years. Um, and he, he developed some health issues. So he, uh, got periodontal disease at like just a little over a year. And I thought, so he was a poop eater. So I thought it was from eating poop because he would have like gunk in his teeth and I would have to brush it and stuff. And I was like, he's only a year old. He shouldn't have this much plaque buildup. So I brought him into my vet who I've known since grade school. And he's like, man, he has like, I haven't never seen this in a dog this young. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. And then the way he, I think it's called like cow hawked, his legs were kind of cow hawked and he just oh. stuff like that. So I'm like, man, I really want a dog that I can like hunt long and hard. And so I was, and he was a great dog. Right. And then my father-in-law's, I was talking to him. He's like, well, if you want to find a new home, I'll take him." Like, all right. So he took him. <laughs> that worked out. Uh, yeah. Worked out. And then I was like, all right, I don't want to, cause I know, um, the value you get looking for or researching breeders and finding a good one. So I was like, all right, I'm going, I'm not going to go with another rescue. Right. I'm going right. to do my homework and really find what's like best for me and my family. So I started doing a little bit of research and then I came down to three different breeds. I was either going to get a setter, a poodle pointer or a Brittany. All right. So, um, my wife's side, uh, of the family, they have, uh, six setters. So I was familiar with them, hunted behind them. And then, um, I went to a couple NAVDA events here in Minnesota and I saw some poodle pointers that I thought were awesome. And then, um, my sister actually turned me on to the French Brittany. So she was on a wait list for like two years. And I went to, um, the guy's kennel and, uh, and I went there probably like three times and I just really liked their personality. And I was like, all right, I might start looking at these guys. So, um, I called up some different breeders, uh, with the French Britney's found someone that I really connected with and really enjoyed talking on the phone with went down, checked out his dogs. I drove four hours or so, and he showed me his dogs work for a couple hours. And then I was like, all right, man, I'm going to get out of your hair. I'll head out. He's like, Hey man, you drove four hours. Stay as long as you want. So I stayed the whole day as they were uh, prepping for a trial. So um, I went with, yeah, I went with the French Brittany. So now I have a 10 month old. Nice. So little pocket rocket going on. Yep. Talk to me about the transition. What's it been like transitioning from a dog that, I mean, let's just face it, like Mal's 
the, the, they're the predominant breed in these rings and everything for a reason. Just their drive, their workload and everything. Transition into bird dogs and Britneys specifically. How's it like working with a Britney compared to what you've known for the past decade? So I would say when I had my small Munsterlander, because I'll start with him first, I kind of learned a lot. So I did a lot, uh, a lot of control work early on. No pressure, but just like, hey, engage with me, right? I worked on uh, leash walking or healing, right? I was more focused on him always getting information from me. And then when I took him out to the field, he was... yeah he needed that right so i was like all right um transitioning to a bird dog and my Brittany, i'm going to give him a lot of freedom like doesn't mean there's rules but i'm going to work on puppy walks not saying a word to him just letting him go right and then um when i'm when i would uh train him and when i still do it would be like in my front yard or in my garage. So certain places where I'm teaching them concepts because I don't want to generalize spaces yet, just so that way when he's in a new space, I want he him to feel like he has the freedom to kind of explore and do whatever he wants. So a lot different than if I was training another Malinois because I would try to go to all these different places working on engagement a lot more micromanaging and control where i feel like with my Brittany, i'm giving him a little bit more room to uh spread his wings and letting him do what he wants to do and ultimately that's kind of what i was wondering about was the balancing act you know it's one thing when you have a dog to where you know hey we're working towards a certain standard and then it's we're we're sticking to that standard and obviously we do that to some regard in the bird dog world, but we have to balance that with the appropriate level of independence almost. If we want that dog going out and searching and finding birds without us interacting or having to command or control, uh, I, I call it playing a video game. I don't want to go hunt with my dogs and feel like I'm playing a video game to where every single move and every single thing I have to make a decision and direct. So I was wondering how that would be going from that wor- world to this and balancing it out and it sounded like you you kind of learned by trial and error with the munsty and so it it kind of worked out that your father-in-law wanted it because it had health issues anyway uh now you have the britney and it sounds like you're you just kind of know where you went wrong quote unquote with the munsty and and you're kind of avoiding that altogether on the britney yep yep and it's it's been a lot of fun for me too, because I feel like, like I would love to get into trials and doing stuff with my Brittany, but I feel like there's a lot uh, less pressure because I'm doing a lot of the training uh, by myself. I've done work like bird dog workshops and things like that, but it's just me and my dog where with Mondiering, it could be really challenging because let's say you have 10, 15 people in the club you're getting feedback from everybody and it becomes really overwhelming where when it's just you and your dog working, then it kind of uh, takes away the noise and you can do a little bit more figuring out yourself. Right. 
Makes total sense to me. So, I mean, obviously the Brittany's 10 months old. Like, we can't go too in deep with what you've done or you're going to do with the dog. But what's your goals? You just said that, you know, you you, you might want to trial and everything, but the grouse captured your imagination when you and your father-in-law were talking about it. Like, ultimately, what's your dream dog if the Brittany ends up being that? What what are we talking about in terms of what you're doing with the dog and chasing and, and all that fun stuff? Yeah, so, um, like... First of all, I love just a good, like hunting dog. I want a good hunting buddy that I can, um, take places, you know, that I don't have to worry about. And there's no stress. Um, this year we've already, we went, uh, to South Dakota for, uh, sharp tail and prairie chickens. Um, we went, uh, opening week and we were out there for like five days. And then we've been up in the grouse woods here in Minnesota, probably over 10 times. Um, and then, uh, last few weeks we've gone out pheasant hunting. So I went pheasant hunting yesterday for a little bit. Um, so he's been on a handful of, uh, wild birds. Um, and then after I listened to your, um, pigeon, uh, episode. Yeah. Uh, I had a pigeon loft. I had pigeons for two years, but they all kept flying away. I could never keep them. Then after listening to the one it's dusted uh, off now. <laughs> yeah. But now I have three that have been around for like, since whenever that podcast was, uh, launched. So okay. now I have training birds to work, work on. So I did a little bit of, uh, that with him, um, this summer and early fall. So, yeah. And so, again, you just said that you've done a great job for a 10-month-old puppy to already be in South Dakota, grouse hunting and pheasant hunting in Minnesota. Uh, that The wild birds are definitely the way to go, you know, and you only have a short window of time that you can do that before we're stuck with just pigeons and training birds in the off-season. Uh, how did he do on the trips? You know, is is he the ability showing through? Is he already pointing? You know, talk to me about what you're seeing from him so far. So, he... Uh, he has a lot of get up and go, uh, for, for a puppy. And from what I've seen in bird dogs, so when he goes, he goes and he, um, I really like his endurance, but I feel like sometimes he goes too hard, too fast that like he's ripped a lot of birds. I was about to say outrunning his nose right now. Oh yeah. Yep. So he, we were in South Dakota, he was, uh, ripping birds. And then, uh, here in Minnesota, I went to this, uh, spot and, uh, I probably saw 10 woodcock and like six grouse and each one of them, he just tore through them. I was like, man, like I want to shoot these things, but I can't cause you're not, <laughs> not pointing them. Right. But it was just, that spot was phenomenal and then it wasn't till last weekend where i saw like a solid point from like me physically seeing it i've i've heard his bell stop and i'm looking for him in the woods and then all of a sudden a grouse will bust and i'm like he had to have been on point right because the bell stopped and i just physically couldn't see it but last weekend was the first like solid point held and then bird flush that was with some pheasant um 
we were walking this field and there's a cluster of trees I'm walking and, um, all of a sudden he just stops and I'm like, dude, are you peeing? You know, like, <laughs> right. Cause usually that's what he does is he'll pee quick then keep running. So he stops and then he kind of, I'm like, Oh shoot, he's on point. So I start circling around him and it was probably like five hens and one rooster. And, uh, I'm trying to sort through them all. And by the time I got a shot off, I, I missed, but oh, it was like, man. all right, you got a nose full, you pointed. So you aren't just like, you can do it, you yeah. know? So, well, and there, there's so much to glean from that. I mean, just taking your dog on the trip, even when they're that young, if he's 10 months now, that was what he was eight months, seven months when you went out to South Dakota and then you just keep taking him and he's ripping through, he's bumping birds. He's doing what puppies are supposed to do. Right. And, and so I get this a lot from people like, oh, you know, I got a, I got an eight month old pup. So too young to hunt. I'm like, well, in the sense of like expectations in hunting, yes, it's, it's probably a little too young, but you still take them. And then every bird is a lesson. And then, you know, as long as they bump a bird and you don't shoot, eventually that light bulb is going to flicker to where if I want this bird, I have to work with dad over there and they're going to slow up and show a point. And then, you know, fortune, hopefully you're in a position where you can actually shoot the bird and, and, and get it on the ground for when you do get the point. And it's just, just the repetitions. They're going to figure it out. As long as you're consistent, you keep putting them in the, uh, opportunity. And it just, I love hearing stories like that. Cause like you just said, I, you know, I'm watching him rip, rip, rip. And it's like, man, I'd like to shoot a bird eventually at one point. And then he gives you an opportunity and then it brings you back down to earth because you missed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Well, and there, another, another, I called my breeder. Uh, this was probably a, a month ago because I was in the, the grouse woods and I was with my, my neighbor came with me and we're hunting. He goes, he, he just starts yelling, are you serious? That's the craziest thing I've ever, ever seen. I go, what's going on? He's like, Royce, my Brittany, he goes, he just snagged a, a rough grouse off the ground. And I was like, no, like, I don't want that. But he, yeah, I guess he just snagged one off the ground. So he said he came around, like pointed, saw the bird's head move and just just stuck it. So he actually snagged a, a, an, a wild rough grouse. See, that's like the one bird in a million that is dumb enough to get snagged by a dog. Not even <laughs> that's just that's just bad luck. I mean, you can't you can't make that up. Yeah. yeah. So I called him. I called him up, and I was like, "Hey." So and he goes, "Nope, that's fine. Just keep letting him like get after right. birds. He'll figure it out." Yeah, but. he'll learn that he caught the the one in a million that just uh, needed to be taken out of the gene pool anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, is there anything else, like any uh, overarching observations or thoughts that you've had transitioning from the world that you previously were in into the bird dog world uh, that, that you think that would be valuable to touch on before we wrap this up? I would say one thing that I, I guess, caught myself doing that I haven't really seen before, and I don't know if it's like a good thing or necessarily a bad thing, but doing a lot of like wool work on the cato board teaching my dog to basically it's a stand stay right they can just stop them i was doing it i was like man he's really good at this i can hold him on for 
like one, two minutes and he'll just stay on because he's just learned that it's super valuable. So I'm like, all right, how can I just like add a little bit more to it? And I was like, I'm just going to start adding distractions. So I'm like, one thing that I want him to get used to is a bird launcher going off. All right. So I'm going to have him go to his woe board. I'll put a bird launcher, uh, 15 feet away from it. When he's on there, boom, I'm going to pop it. Yes. Then I'll go market and reward. All right. He's good at that. Doesn't bother him. All right. Now I'm going to launch something out of it. Okay. Just a bumper. Boom. Do it. All right. Then I'll, and this all isn't in one session. I'm just, adding things to it. All right. So I launch a bumper. Okay. Now let's see if I can get him used to like the noise of a beeper collar. Cause I have one. All right. I'm going to throw that in the yard and have them do it with the beeper collar. Right. And just doing, just adding different things to it versus just kind of going through the motions in a sterile environment. And then I would do it with um, I've done it before with a pigeon, right? So he goes on the board, pigeon goes off. Yeah. I'm going to mark and reward. And he's like, Whoa, that was crazy. And then I'm like, <laughs> all right, he got really interested in that. I'm not going to do that again or for a while. Cause it's too hard for him. Right. So I'm just going to keep working him around, uh, different, different distractions. And too then too also- hard for him in regards to the, the pigeon is such high level reward for him that it was hard for him to maintain his place. Is that what you're saying yep. okay yeah because he would want to he would want to get up and chase so i'm yep. like all right i want him to have success so i'm not going to do that again and then i would do some different like luring games with him so i would like lure him spin him in a circle lure him spin him in a circle and i would test to see if he he knew the word whoa so i'd go whoa as i'm still luring get him to stop click and treat so i would do all these like games with him have him move, move around in the moment i would say whoa he'd stop so now at like 10 months old, he's like, I can almost like, if he's still close to me, just stop him. So, yeah. but I was just playing, playing games with him, trying to, I guess, prove behaviors that he already, already knew. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, it's, it's fun, right? Yeah. We're, we're working with our dogs. We're having fun. We're changing things up. Some dogs get bored. Uh, handlers get bored doing the same thing over and over and over again, just because, you know, we want structure in our training sessions doesn't mean that it has to be the same monotonous things over and over and over again. Uh, that's something that I'm learning. You know, I have the English setter pup now coming from a German short hair and a small Munsterlander and going to an English setter. The work drive is different. She still has the desire to work and go do stuff. And I mean, she's still very young at this. So I'm just figuring this dog out and, and her personality, but it's different to where like, you can't, you, I understand that she's a puppy and that they have younger or shorter, uh, attention spans than, than, uh, older dogs anyway, but just comparative to these, uh, to the other dogs when they were puppies, it's like, she gets bored if you do the same exact session or things multiple times in a row so it's just like one day i'm working place board the next day i need to go work recall call the next day we're just going to go do a fun run and then we're going to go back to the place board it's like so far like i'm really working and focusing on that retrieve drive buyer because she's a setter i want to i want to have the best chance i can at at a retriever out of her but you can just tell that like while she has retrieve drive and i'm getting good reps out of her that same drive, it's not in the same way that my short hair and Munsty 
showed for the retrieve. And so yeah. what what I'm getting at is I'm having to change up my training sessions more often, new locations, new tasks, new things, but still keep it consistent and structured. It's challenging, but it also makes it a lot more fun, in my opinion. And I think I think it's if it's more fun for me, it's going to be more fun for the dogs. I, I would like to think anyway. Yep. Yep. No, I I agree with that a hundred percent. All good stuff, man. I, I, we could keep talking about this all the all the time. I know we just scratched the surface on, on Mondio Ring, but yeah, I thought it was really fascinating. Hopefully, the listeners thought so too. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we don't have enough time in the day to really jump down that rabbit hole, and I don't think <laughs> yeah. the listeners would hang on to to that uh, specific thing anyway. But is there anywhere? Is there anything that you need to plug or would like to plug before we hop off here? If people want to have my information, if they're interested in monitoring or have any questions, uh, my Instagram is face Jake, so my last name is just Jake, and my last name is spelled F A A S. And they can always reach out to me on that. And I, I do a lot of, or I don't do as much club stuff as I used to, but I do a lot of, um, like private sessions. Yeah. So people who are in the sport, I meet up with them and then, um, I help work their dog in the suit. Perfect. Love it. Well, Jake, I appreciate you coming on, sharing uh, sharing your experience and, and talking a little bit about something that's probably foreign to 99.9% of the listeners uh, on here. I enjoyed it, and uh, you'll have to be sure to check in with me and let me know how the Brittany's coming along. Yeah, I definitely will. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that conversation about Mondio Ring with Jake. This was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, as well as Poodle Pointer Society. Uh, Sorry, this is going to be a, a really quick outro. As you guys can probably hear, my my voice is a little strained. I'm, I'm still a few days removed from Pheasant Fest getting back, and I got back from Pheasant Fest, and man, that that trade show flu, quote unquote, it, it hit me hard. And so my voice is still recovering. I still don't feel the best. So I'm going to keep this relatively short. Uh, you guys kind of all know my mentality and, and why I do episodes such as this with Jake. It was, it was really enjoyable to uh, jump down a rabbit hole on something that I'm completely unfamiliar with and learning more about just dog training in general. And, and it really ties back into my just overall enjoyment of a good uh, well-trained and obedient dog. I think there's there's so much for us in the hunting dog community to learn and glean from uh, these other working dog uh, circuits or organizations or testing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, just 
just expand your search, you know, gather what you can from outside sources. You're, you know, don't just go down the normal uh, resources that we have to us. I mean, there, there's a world of knowledge out there. And, and, you know, when I have an opportunity to talk about something like Mondio that ring that's completely foreign to me, I'm going to jump at it. And I hope you guys enjoyed this this uh, conversation as much as I did. It, it was a wealth of knowledge. And and uh, I would go on and on and on about it a little bit more. Uh, but obviously, with my voice the way it is, I'm, I'm going to save you guys the torture of listening to it that way. Uh, but with that being said, the typical housekeeping, if you guys support and uh, want to see some more content from GDIY, please consider joining Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundogger yourself. We're trying to amp up the content and usually I do extended outros uh, as well, but with my voice, I'm not going to be doing an extended outro this this month. Uh, I will be, or this week, I will be back next week with, uh, with a new topic. So uh, patrons, thanks for your patience on that one. But yeah, join Patreon, uh, hit subscribe, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, all that fun stuff under gundogger yourself. If you have anything direct or feedback or topic suggestions, what have you, uh, please take a second, shoot it to us at gundogityourself at gmail.com. With all that being said, I am going to wrap this up, and you guys don't want to listen to this anymore, I'm sure. But uh, again, thanks as always for hitting download. Uh, Hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and check out uh, uh, another episode next week. Next week is another fun, random topic episode brought to you by GDIY. But there is... uh it's going to be a fun topic, and then after that, I have some an exciting series that's going to kick off that I think uh, a, a lot of a lot of the listeners are going to enjoy. It's it's uh, it, it, I, I'll save it. I'll I'll kind of tease it a little bit more on next week. But again, thanks to everybody for hitting play and download. It means the world to us, and we'll check back next week. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.